Jodcast. We don't care if Pluto's a planet or not. With Megan Argo, Claire Bretherton, Ian Harrison, Monique Henson, Ian Morrison, Josephine Peters, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast, August 2015 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josie, and joining me in the studio today are Monique and Megan. Hello. Hi. It is Monique's first time at presenting today. Yep, I'm normally just an editor. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the presenting team. In the show this time, Charlie interviews Dr. Amanda Caracas about the formation of heavy elements in stars, and Ian Morrison and Claire Brotherton take a look at what's happening in the August night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Ian with this month's news. In the news this month, Pluto flyby, earthiest planet yet, and buckyballs in space. The dwarf planet Pluto received a visit this month from NASA's New Horizons space probe, revealing spectacular features of colour, atmosphere and geology on the solar system's ninth most massive object. As described on last month's Jodcast, New Horizons has carried an array of instruments towards Pluto since 2006, but has only just flown by the dwarf planet, lingering long enough to capture images of Pluto and its largest moon, Charon, which have greatly changed our view of them. Amongst the spectacular discoveries was the apparent variety of Pluto's surface textures. Whilst it was expected that Pluto would be inert and pockmarked by billions of years of impacts from smaller lumps of ice and rock, the data received from New Horizons showed a relatively fresh and clean-looking surface, indicating that either the rate of bombardment is much lower than thought in this part of the solar system, or that the geological activity on Pluto reconfigures its crust and smooths away the impact craters. Initial guesses from astronomers are that this indicates that the surface is only around 100 million years old, a comparatively short span in the few billion years since Pluto's formation. Further evidence of geological activity was also seen in other features. Huge mountains appear to rise 3.5 kilometres up, comparable to the Canadian Rockies here on Earth, but are apparently made of water ice, the only ice strong enough at minus 235 Celsius to be capable of supporting such large structures. Away from the mountains, and at the edge of the prominent heart-shaped region named the Tombaugh region after Pluto's discoverer, there are also apparent glaciers of frozen nitrogen flowing and merging around the more solid features. What is creating the warmth causing these glaciers to move is so far unknown, but could be radioactive processes within the rocky core of the dwarf planet. New Horizons' view of Pluto's companion Charon also provided surprises, with the moon showing huge canyons kilometres long, possibly caused by tidal forces from Pluto, and a dark polar region christened Mordor. Further information on Pluto and Charon will come in a torrent over the next 16 months, the time it will take to download all that which has already been taken by the New Horizons instruments. Before turning its attention away from Pluto, New Horizons also took measurements of its atmosphere as well as a spectacular image showing the sun lighting up the haze around the dwarf planet. The probe also measured the deflection of radio waves sent from Earth in order to measure the density of the atmosphere, showing it to have around half the mass inferred from previous measurements. As well as the wealth of data still to be downloaded from this month's observations, New Horizons will now travel on towards the Kuiper belt of small objects which encircles the solar system, where it plans to rendezvous with one or two of the larger 50-mile-wide objects in around five years' time. Also this month, much excitement was generated by the latest release of information on extrasolar planets, that is, planets outside our solar system, from the Kepler satellite. 
Of particular interest of the Twelve was the planet known as Kepler-452b, as it is one of the most Earth-like so far discovered, even if there is some way to go before any true Earth analogues are confirmed. Kepler-452b has around five times the mass, one and a half times the radius, and twice Earth's gravity, meaning that it doesn't score as highly on the Earth's Similarity Index, or ESI, used to rank exoplanets of some of those previously discovered. It does, however, exist in an orbit around a G-class star, very similar in attributes to our own sun, at a distance putting it in the habitable zone where estimated temperature and atmospheric pressures may be able to support the formation of liquid water. Much else remains unknown about the planet, with a technical paper describing its discovery giving only around a 50-50 chance of it being a rocky terrestrial planet rather than a small gas one. Travel times would also be long. Kepler 452b is 1400 light years away in Cygnus, meaning that it would take the New Horizons probe some 26 million years to get there at its current speed. It is, however, further evidence of the richness of variety of exoplanets which exist and a fantastic demonstration of astronomers' ability to discover and learn about such tiny, faint and distant objects. And finally, a research problem dating back nearly a century was given a probable solution this month by the discovery of some unique properties of buckyballs in space. Buckminster fullerenes, to give the full name to the football-shaped constructions of 60 carbon atoms, have been known to exist in space since 2010, when the Spitzer infrared satellite observed them in the remnants of a white dwarf star. This month, a team of chemists at the University of Basel in Switzerland managed to create a cold, high-vacuum environment approximating interstellar space and measured the spectra of buckyballs, that is, how they absorb and emit different colours of light when trapped there by electric fields. These light spectra appeared consistent with so-called diffuse interstellar bands observed in interstellar gas both inside and outside our own galaxy. These diffuse interstellar bands were first observed by the University of California graduate student Mary Lee Hager in 1919 and have had multiple suggested explanations since, with some even proposing that they could be from free-floating deep space bacteria. The discovered match with the properties of buckyballs appears to be a very good one, however, showing how technically challenging chemistry work it took the team in Basel nearly 20 years to achieve can shed light on astronomical problems. Thanks for that, Ian. Now, Charlie interviews Dr. Amanda Caracas about the formation of heavy elements in stars. Okay, so today I'm speaking to Dr. Amanda Caracas from the Australian National University. Thanks for joining us on Jogcast. That's okay, it's great to be here. Uh, You've just given a really interesting talk on heavy elements in red giant stars. So before we get into details of that, could you tell us a little bit about your research and sort of Mm -hmm. What areas of physics interest you? Right, so I'm interested in how stars evolve and how they make elements inside their interiors. Uh, And so I guess I'm a theorist. I I have done some observations, but I tend to make theoretical models of low and intermediate mass stars. So stars like our sun, up to about 10 times the mass of our sun. Awesome. So you said you're interested in heavy element formation. Uh, How do these elements form in the sun? Uh, And do different elements form in different ways? Or is there a cycle, different mechanisms, that sort of thing? Yeah, so it depends on what we mean by heavy elements. Uh, so in particular, I'm interested in, well, I'm interested in how all elements are formed. So this is really elements heavier than lithium, in fact. Uh, and so there are different types of nuclear reactions that take place in stars that can make these elements. But if we focus on what I call the heavy elements, these are elements heavier than iron, and these are formed in stars mostly through neutron capture reactions. Um, and can we clear something up very quickly? Mm-hmm. 
In this sort of science, metal means something different to it, what most people would call a metal. Is that it, right? Yeah, it really does. In fact, uh, astronomers, I think, are quite lazy in the sense we think everything that's, well, I guess stellar astronomers in particular, maybe other astronomers are less so, but we think anything that's not hydrogen and helium is a metal. Okay. So a very simplistic view, really. But then if you're looking at really heavy stuff, then that's more similar to the metals that we know of. That's exactly right. Although, yeah, we tend to, then I'm interested really in nuclei, and then we have to consider hundreds of nuclei, and then we're really interested in the details. And these really are traditional metals in some sense. There are traditional elements that form on Earth and that we can make on Earth in colliders and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But then there's all sorts of crazy physics that goes on in the centre of stars. Uh, Are there a lot of things that you can never form on Earth that exist there? Yes, probably not in the sort of stars I'm interested in, though, actually. So stars like our sun, um, and up to, yeah, roughly, say, eight or ten times the mass of our sun, some of them will form unstable elements in their deep interiors when they're red giant stars. So not like our sun today, but when it becomes a red giant. Uh, but most of them don't deviate too far from stable isotopes. However, in the in exploding, for example, supernova or neut- colliding neutron stars, there's all sorts of exotic scenarios for making the heaviest elements in nature, such as uranium and thorium. We think we might be able to make super exotic things we haven't even detected in the laboratory. Wow. Okay. So, and what are the effects that these heavier elements have on the life cycles of stars and maybe even on the host galaxies? Again, yeah. So if we just focus on elements heavier than iron, not, they actually don't change the stars themselves too much because all of the reactions that take place in these stars are not energetically important. So a neutron capture reaction, for example, it produces very little energy, unlike hydrogen burning, which when it takes place, it produces, uh, let's see, we use obscure units, we use mega electron volts. (laughs) It produces roughly 26 mega electron volts. I can't remember right off the top of my head what that is in joules, but it's something like 10 to the minus 12 joules. But of course, our sun does a hydrogen burning reaction roughly 10 to the 38 times a second. That's why it's how we get the solar luminosity out. So, so, the, so hydrogen burning is an efficient way of making energy inside a star because you have four hydrogens make one helium nuclei. Whereas in the neutron capture reactions that make the really heavy elements don't produce very much energy. They don't change the structure of the star, so they won't have anything to, to do with how it lives or dies. Essentially, they're just made, and then somehow the star will release that in, into the galaxy. Uh, how galaxies change as a result of it. I don't know if the galaxy itself will change so much as a result of the heavy elements, again, the very heaviest elements, but they will become more more abundant with time. Um, and <laughs> when generations of stars form, and different generations will have different amounts or yields of these heavy elements because they've been formed in the past, then they get blown out, and then more stars form, and they incorporate these. Uh, are there any significant differences compared to a, a young star? There can be. Um, so, for example... The outer halo, so the halo of our galaxy, we think, formed first, and that has a very low metal abundance. And again, now we're talking about anything that's not hydrogen helium. So, the, so for example, the average metallicity, and that is, again, it refers to the, the amount of, that's not hydrogen helium. The average metallicity in the halo is roughly an order of magnitude less than in our sun. It's a, it's a bit more than that, actually. Maybe 30 times less metals than in our sun. So we do think that there is a difference in the metal content of old systems. Now, there are some caveats, of course. The bulge of our galaxy is also considered very old. Uh, and we think that the bulge of our galaxy, however, is quite metal-rich. So it more more has a metallicity close to our sun. There's a spread, of course, in iron content, but we think it's very similar to our sun. So so it's com- so, so chemical evolution is complicated because it relies not just on uh, stellar yield, so how much how much of an element star makes, but how quickly it can how quickly stars form and die as well, and the types of stars that form and die. 
And that brings us to your research. So you simulate element formation in these stars, is that correct? That is right. So I make theoretical models, so theoretical predictions of how much of a given element a star of a particular mass and composition makes over its lifetime. And how, how do you model one of these systems? A, a star is a huge thing, and it's, uh, well, well <laughs> yeah. what do you do? Yeah. It's a good question. So we have a set of um, differential equations. It all comes down to mass, essentially. So, <laughs> so we have a set of differential equations uh, that we solve on a computer. Uh, how we do it really depends on the physical assumptions we make. We generally assume that the stars are spherically symmetric, which means we only have one space coordinate. So we have, and we usually use the, the mass as the independent variable. So, so when we make a, a model of a star, we're solving from the from the interior of the star outwards to its center, uh, and then we will evolve that forward in time. And we make some assumptions about what sort of nuclear reactions take place in the in the in, inside its core. Uh, we also make an, we make some assumptions about the initial composition of of the star, certain and how how the mass is lost. How if we're doing massive stars, how the explosion happens. These generally tend to be quite quite simple flight because stars are very complex things that cover many orders of magnitude in reality. Cool. And you mentioned the core. Is this where most of the reaction takes place then, right? The yes, center? that's right. So Could you give us uh, an example of the sort of the scale of that? How uh, big yes. is the core compared to the rest of the star? So that's a good question. So, uh, so, so uh, thermonuclear reactions are very temperature sensitive. So they quickly drop off as a function temperature. So really, in our sun, it's probably only 10% of its mass is where the nuclear reactions happen. But it's, I'm giving an approximate number here. Um, so... In terms of the radial scale, I don't know because I don't tend to think of a star in terms of its radius. That seems very strange because stars, um, very especially when we talk about red giant stars, stars are they're really centrally concentrated. So the example I gave in my talk today is that if we have uh, a red giant star, the core where all the nuclear reactions happen is roughly, if we scale that to the size of a marble, in terms of radial scale to get to the outer layers, it's 500 meters away. So I'm really only interested in what happens in the in the layers in that marble. So that's why mass is such a more, it's, it's, it's a more useful variable, if, if you like. That's a really weird thing to think about because a yeah. red giant is huge, isn't it? Mm. But then does that mean that most of the matter is all in this very tiny core and it's very Not diffuse? most of the mass. So again, if, so if I, so I gave, so, so, so that example before was a radial scale. Mm. The mass scale is a little bit different. So let's say, so if the core, if our marble is now, if we think in terms of the, the, the masses in each region, then, so let's say we have a three solar mass star initially, so three times the mass of our sun. That core, that marble might have about 0.6 solar mass, and the envelope might be 2.4 solar mass. Okay, so, so not, not too different. That's why mass is a, is a much better variable to use. Okay. As opposed to... To measure the, the, the exactly, scale. Exactly, and scale. what's happening inside it. Cool. Um, and are there any problems that you come across? Well, this is a, a big, complex thing. You've got to make some assumptions and that sort of stuff. Are there any sort of bottlenecks to this? Are there any big problems that you have or assumptions that you have to make that make it more difficult to do this? Yes, there's lots of problems. <laughs> so, I mean, so I mentioned there are a number of simplifying assumptions that go into the simulations. And sometimes it's clear from what... So what we want to do is simulate reality. So we want to be able to make a, a model, a prediction that will match or at least compare well to a real star. So we often, for example, something I'll do, I'll, I'll, I will try and say, okay, I want to be able to simulate what the composition of a star looks like, so how much carbon it has, how much barium it has. And I compare this to real stars of the same evolutionary state, so the, so stars that are all red giants. 
and one thing we do find that there are some some problems, and we think these come down to the way that we treat stars. We assume they're all single stars, and we assume that they're all uh, and we, and we have this idea of the spherical symmetry. So one of the problems I've been looking at recently, and that I'm I find really interesting, uh, is how a companion star affects how we think stars change and evolve in time. And one thing we know is that so our sun doesn't have a companion. It has planets, but it doesn't have a companion star. But most stars in the night sky, most sun-like stars, have a companion, up to 50-60% of them. And we know that they have a big effect, that they can have a big effect on whether a star becomes a red giant and what sort of red giant it will become. And so that's something I've been working on recently. Cool. And um, if we go back very quickly, Mm -hmm. how is it that you measure the elements in a star to compare your models to that? Okay, that's not something, yeah, that's, it's, that's a very good question. So we don't, of course, there are two ways we can do it and they're quite complementary. So the, so the main way that we do it is through stellar spectroscopy. So we measure stars light and we can break it down into its constituent parts and we can, depending on the temperature of the star and its brightness and its evolutionary state, we can measure spectral lines. So these are absorption lines or emission lines in the star's spectra and then from that and some magic that involves knowing uh, things about uh, atomic data in stars and knowing how the stellar atmospheres work in stars, we can derive an an elemental abundance. Usually only elements. It's very hard to get isotopic ratios from stars. But it is possible for some elements, such as carbon, magnesium, and even a couple others. So usually stellar spectroscopy. And usually you want, depending on, again, the sort of star, usually you want to have a nice big telescope with a nice sensitive spectroscope on there. Uh, the other way we we can do it is uh, it is through uh, looking at bits of meteorites, and you might think, how do you get how do you get information from a star from a meteorite? So so we found that the oldest meteorites that we find on our planet they're called carbonaceous chondrites. So these are very unprocessed meteorites. They're old. They're almost as old as our solar system, and they have these tiny bits of stardust inside them that when we break down a part of the meteorite, we find a little bit of this silicon carbide grain or graphite grains or diamond grains, spinel, all sorts of things. And when we measure the isotopic ratio of these stardust grains, we find they are very different to the bulk of our solar system in composition, but they match, oddly enough, some of the spectroscopic data we get from stars. And so we think, okay, these are bits of stardust. And so we can use these two in a complementary way to learn information about what's happening in real stars. So what's happening in stars that we can see at the moment and what happened What happened in stars that have already gone supernova? All become red giants. All become Remember, red giants. Because most of the stardust grains, in fact, so the, there are two main sources of stardust grains. One, are red giant stars, so stars like our sun will become when it evolves. So that this will never become a supernova. It'll be a planetary nebula when it dies. Well, the other main source are supernova explosions. So these two, probably the red giants contribute a little bit more, maybe 70% of the grains we, we detect. Cool. Uh, and, yeah, that was going to be my very last question. You mentioned our sun, mm-hmm. so a planetary nebula. Could you, could you talk us through what we know about our sun, what's mm-hmm. going to happen to it as it ages, and what's going to happen to us, maybe? Yeah, that's a good question. People have made a lot of models to try and predict what will happen to our sun when it dies and what will happen to our solar system as well when it dies, when when our sun becomes a giant. So our sun is roughly halfway through its life. It's going to live for about 10 billion years uh, and it's about 4.5 billion years old now. So it's got another 5 billion years of main sequence, which is hydrogen burning in its core. Will life be possible? So we expect that the sun, as the sun's aging, it's becoming brighter and maybe in about 2 or 3 billion years it might be too bright 
to sustain life on this planet. That's against two or three billion years, maybe or four, maybe. So it, the, there are there are some uncertainties in that number, but you know, a couple billion years. This is before a star becomes a giant. It'll run out of hydrogen, and then the core will shrink. The outer layers expand. And depending on the calculations, most people predict that it probably won't, it'll reach close to the Earth at that point, but not quite to the Earth, maybe up to 50, 100 times the radius it is now. So the size of the star will almost swallow the Earth within its radius? Probably, probably not at that point, but it'll be, go through, because a star like our sun will go through, it'll become a red giant twice. And it's when it becomes a giant the second time that it'll, it'll definitely swallow the Earth, for sure. And at that point, then all the outer layers will eventually blow off and you'll end up with this hot core that can ionise that surrounding nebula. And then you'll see there's a planetary nebula. But that's probably... It'll spend about a billion years or longer on the red giant, so that's about six billion years from now. So we're a long way off. Okay. We are a long way off. Yes. Cool. Well, thank you again. I think that's all we've got time for. Thank you for joining us, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on the cast again. Right. thanks. Cheers. Thanks for that, Charlie. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, Monique and Megan, I believe you have a shared big discussion of Pluto. Well, yeah, we couldn't really do a jogcast this month without talking about Pluto. And, yeah, as we said at the beginning, we don't really care if it's a planet or not. It's awesome, whatever you decide to call it. I'm pretty sure Pluto doesn't care one way or the other. Yeah, I'm not sure I ever thought we'd ever see Pluto this close, really. Like, it's just, it's completely amazing that we've even managed to do it. Yeah, the pictures are absolutely stunning. And the, the as it got closer and closer, there was so much anticipation because there's so much still left to come back from this mission because it's going to take so long to send all the data back. But the quick images we've seen so far, what's really stunned me is the the sheer number of mountain ranges that they're seeing on the surface and the what looks like an awful lot of ice and how young the surface actually looks. When you look at the rocky bodies in the solar system, they're covered in craters. You look at the moon, for example. The far side of the moon is covered in craters. That's an old surface. You look at Pluto, and it's a lot smoother than you'd expect, given how old we think it is, which is really interesting. There's a lot of science that's going to come out of this. Yeah, I saw a headline somewhere where they said they'd seen some flowing ice, which is oh, wow. even more of a step up, right, as to how active yeah. it's being. It's uh... Yeah, well, because we, we see evidence of things moving on Mars, but Mars is a lot closer to the sun and a lot warmer, so you do get carbon dioxide melting, and then you get flows down, you know, sand dunes, you get evidence of stuff moving on a daily basis. But, yeah, I'm not sure we expected to see quite that much change on Pluto. Hmm. Especially with no large sort of parent body to drive the tidal forces to generate the heat for yeah. anything to happen. So I think there were talks about the possible radioactive elements in the core of yeah, Pluto that could heating. be causing yeah. the heating. Um, so it's not quite as dead as we thought. Yeah, could well be. It's, it's going to be really interesting watching all the pictures come back over the next few months. And um, there was also the fantastic picture, and we, we've known for a while that Pluto has a thin atmosphere, but when they actually flew past it, when New Horizons passed Pluto and turned around and looked back at it, did you see the fantastic image they had where this, Pluto was backlit by the sun? So you've got this nice dark disk and just a wonderful glowing edge around the disk, which is actually Pluto's atmosphere. It almost looks like a solar eclipse picture of the sun and a corona mm-hmm. with the moon blocking out the, the sun's disk. It's, it's really cool. So that means you can, they can then use that to figure out what is in the atmosphere of Pluto? Well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they've got spectrometers and all kinds of experiments on New Horizons, so they can actually use the data that they've got back from the observation. Yeah, have a, we get a much better understanding of not only the composition of the atmosphere, but the temperature and the pressure and how far it extends out from the surface as well. Because Pluto's so small, it can't really hold on to its atmosphere in the kind of dense way that the Earth does. So its atmosphere is more tenuous and probably goes out a lot further. 
Yes, they were saying um, that there are dark red spots that are seen on Sharon and they think that it might be the transfer of the atmosphere from Pluto going over towards Sharon and then sort of building up over millions of years onto the um, the North Pole of Sharon. Lots of Sharons. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, you know, so there's so much more stuff that's going to come out of this because it's still, you know, sweeping through that part of the solar system and there's going to be a lot of images not only of Pluto itself but of the the surrounding region and you know when when we started taking better pictures with the Hubble Space Telescope we started finding more objects in the Pluto system more little moonlets so I wonder whether New Horizons are going to find any new small bodies in orbit around Pluto probably you know maybe slightly diminishes the argument that it is a planet but yeah as I said I don't care I'm pretty sure Pluto doesn't give a monkeys. Yeah. It's, it's nice to have a new class of objects to, to study and find out more about, because if there are more objects like Pluto in the Kuiper Belt, then we might find out more about dwarf planets in general. Mm. And I'm not sure where New Horizons is going next, so they, they were going to send it on to another Kuiper Belt object, but I'm not sure they've made a decision as to which one they're actually going to next. So with a bit of a course adjustment, they can go on and take you know pretty good pictures of something else as well, which is just as exciting as, you know... Never thought we'd see anything this far out in the solar system in anything like this detail. It's brilliant. So how long is it going to take them to send all the data back? Because they've got like a one kilobyte connection or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's pretty slow. So it's like you know the old sort of dial-up days with the modems that made lots of mm. noises. You know, it's, it's really slow to load a web page. And it's that kind of speed you're probably getting on the, the downloads from the spacecraft. So it's going to take probably 18 months to get all of the, mm. the images back from the flyby. Because it's still acquiring more data now, I would imagine. Probably at a lower rate as it's past Pluto, but... Just have to be patient. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing what they've brought back already. I mean, the, the zoomed-in part that they've got of the heart shape in the south, is um, the resolution, I think, is if you took a same, similar sort of picture of Earth, you'd be able to see cricket pitches. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's <laughs> so the same, really. that, pretty good resolution. Yeah. So the, the other image I was looking at this morning from New Horizons is um, showing another mountain range in the, the heart or the head of Pluto. If you saw some of the images that people were posting on Facebook, they'd superimpose the cartoon head of Pluto and it fits the, across that heart-shaped region almost exactly the same way. It's kind of cool. But there's another mountain range they found in there and the, the pictures coming back from it that I saw today, um, you, they're resolving d- details of about the size of a kilometre in size. So you're seeing a fair amount of detail in these mountain ranges and the surrounding terrain as well. Again, it looks really flat. It looks almost sort of sand dune-like. It's really strange. It's nice that they took the ashes of Clyde Tombaugh there as well as the sort of discoverer of Pluto to actually be the only one who actually goes near it. <laughs> uh, so we're looking, we're looking forward to hearing more about Pluto soon. Uh, right. Uh, my odd and end is about vitamins in space. Um... So astrobiologists at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center have been researching how vitamins, particularly vitamin B3, may have arrived to us via meteorites and comets. Uh, Vitamin B3 is otherwise known as niacin. Uh, It's useful for metabolism and for brain function and can also be found in marmite. Um, Something that generates almost as much of a debate as whether Pluto's a planet or not. Exactly. <laughs> no, vitamins, controversial. Uh, so that what they did, this work is extending on previous work where they dissolved meteorites and found concentrations of vitamin B3 in the samples. Uh, what they've done, so instead of just using this isolated, this one meteorite that they've used, they've simulated various conditions from space to test if vitamin B3 could still be constructed in more common ways. So they've simulated space radiation by bombarding uh, the samples with photons, sort of a a million volts, and they've mixed with 10 various concentrations of water ice. 
And under all of these different scenarios, vitamin B3 can still be made. And as well as that, the compounds have also matched very well with the findings that they found from the meteorites. So not only are they finding out that the vitamin can be made from these samples, but it also matches what they've already found. The vitamin itself could have quite a few origins, uh, mainly from clouds of gas and dust, which could be originating from supernovae or from sort of stellar winds from red giants or protoplanetary systems. And all these clouds of gas and dust contain basic molecules. However, when you get the radiation from space interacting with these molecules, chemical reactions are induced and they can produce more complex molecules, maybe vitamin B3. So as well as finding it on meteorites, there's also the possibility that this could be found on a comet. Maybe where Rosetta is? That would be kind of cool. Who knows? So this could help back up their their research already. So they found that it can be produced in a lot of environments, but if they could also find it on Rosetta, that would be quite nice supporting evidence for, for what they found. Well, it's probably one of the chemicals that I guess future Mars missions will probably go looking for. You know, anything that is related to life is of interest on any planetary object. So if we go, you know, send another spacecraft to Mars, maybe that's something that we should put a test on, on board to, to look at if they haven't already. You know. Yeah. Not yeah, a planetary scientist. But, yeah. You know. yeah, apparently vitamin B3 is thought to be like one of the really ancient uh, vitamins that's been around for a long time. It's really crucial to, to how our metabolism works. So it really is one of those sort of essential building blocks. That if they found it, that would be a really decent indicator. Yeah. I didn't know that. No. Well, the the more astrochemistry we kind of do, the more the more sort of organic compounds and molecules we keep finding in these gas clouds around, you know, in young stellar regions and stuff. And it's you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that are basically yeah, the building blocks for life as we know it. You know, it doesn't mean there's not other kinds of life, but life as we know it. So, I remember a while ago there was a big gas cloud found with a massive amount of alcohol in it. That hit the newspapers. Everybody went crazy about massive cloud of alcohol in space. It's definitely a load of Brits about, in yeah, space. Yeah. Cocktails you'd make with star formation regions and you the alcohol you Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so now we've got, we've got vitamins as well as all the other organic chemicals. You know, it's, it's not inconceivable that life could exist somewhere else. Whether it's intelligent on communicating, you know, in the radio part of the spectrum as we are is a completely different matter, of course, but... Who knows what they might find on Earth 2.0. Mm. Oh, that's true. <laughs> and now for someone who gets all his vitamins, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for August 2015. And the good thing is that the nights are getting slightly longer. And the other really good thing this month is that when the Perseid meteor shower is at its peak around the middle of the month, there's no moon. So there'll be nothing, assuming we get some clear skies to stop us observing a wonderful array of meteor trails in the sky. Well, let's start with the stars that we can see. As sunset fades away, the bright star Arcturus in Bootes is setting on the western horizon. But in the south, fairly high, is that wonderful region of the sky with three stars, Vega in Lyra, Deneb in Cygnus, and Altair in Aquila, making up what's called the Summer Triangle. The Milky Way runs through here, so it's a very rich part of the sky to observe. If you follow the line from Altair up towards Vega, about a third of the way, you actually cross a fairly dark region of the Milky Way. It's called the Cygnus Rift. And in there is a very nice little asterism called Brocky's Cluster, or more commonly called the Coat Hanger. It looks like an upside-down coat hanger. But then rising in the southeast, we have the great square of Pegasus. And that is a way to find one of the loveliest objects in the heavens, the Andromeda Galaxy. 
You start at the star called Alpha Rats, which is the top left-hand corner of the square peckers, although it's actually in Andromeda. You go left one bright star, slightly fork right up to the next bright star, then turn right through a right angle, one fairly bright star, and the same distance again with binoculars, and even under dark skies, your unaided eyes, you should see a little fuzzy glow. And that's the Andromeda galaxy. And the thing I like about it is that the photons that are falling on your retina left there two and a half million years ago. You are literally looking back into time. What about the planets? Well, there's only one planet that's actually visible out of twilight hours, and that's Saturn, as we shall see. But in fact, we can, if we try hard, see virtually all of them. Now, Jupiter is going to pass behind the Sun on August the 26th. So we can only really see it in the first few days of the month, in the twilight hours, low in the west after sunset. Uh, Venus actually passes six degrees below Jupiter on July the 31st, so it'll be close for the first few days of the month. But they'll both be coming progressively more difficult to observe. It was great to observe the two very close together, still reasonably high at twilight, during the first part of July. As I said, Saturn is the only bright planet visible outside twilight hours. It lies in Libra, near the wide double star Alpha Libri, falling in brightness a little from 0.4 plus to plus 0.5 magnitudes. It ceases its retrograde motion, that's westwards in the sky, on August the 2nd, so will begin to move eastwards back towards Scorpius. One hour after sunset, it will lie about 20 degrees above the horizon. So the atmosphere will limit our view a bit of its 17 arc-second disk. But the ring system, now about 24 degrees open, should still so nicely, along with Titan, its largest satellite. Saturn gets to a point 90 degrees east of the Sun, it's called Eastern Quadrature, on August the 21st. So the globe's shadow on the rings is at its maximum extent, giving a rather three-dimensional view to this, our most beautiful planet. Mercury. This month, Mercury turns to the twilight sky before sunset. During the month, it rises a little higher in the sky during the twilight hours. Mars. As August begins, Mars, shining at magnitude plus 1.7, rises about 70 minutes before the sun, so obviously seen low in the east before sunrise. This increases to two hours by month's end, with the brightness virtually unchanged at plus 1.8 magnitudes. On August the 8th, at an elevation of just 5 degrees, it will lie below Castor and Pollux in Germany, about 45 minutes before sunrise. And on the 20th and 21st of the month, it will lie close to M44, the beehive cluster, or Prisopi, in Cancer. Venus. Well, Venus rises at sunrise on the 18th of August, but 55 minutes before the sun a week later, and about an hour 30 minutes earlier by month's end. As it does so, its brightness brightens from minus 4.1 to minus 4.5 magnitudes. That's virtually as bright as, as it ever gets. And its angular size reduces slightly from 58 to 52 arc seconds, while the percentage illuminated area of the planet, that's called the phase, increases from 1 to 9%. 
so close to the sun, it's not really safe, safe to observe after sunrise. So finally, what about some highlights of the month? Well, during August, it's good to find two lovely objects not far from the summer triangle. One is virtually in it.、Uh, the first is the globular cluster M13 in Hercules. Two-thirds of the way up the right-hand side of the four stars that make up the keystone in the constellation Hercules is M13, the best globular cluster visible in our northern sky. Over to the east, just left to the bright star Vega in Lyra, is the multiple star system Epsilon Lyrae, often called the Double Double. With binoculars, a binary star is seen. But when observed with a telescope on a still night, each of those two stars is revealed to be a double star, hence the name. August is also a good month to observe Neptune with a small telescope. It comes into opposition—that's when it's nearest to the Earth—on the 31st of August. So it will be seen well both this month and next. Its magnitude is plus 7.9. So at Neptune, with a disk just 3.7 arc seconds across, is easily spotted with binoculars, lying in the constellation Aquarius. And on the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, there's a chart that shows you exactly where to look. It rises to an elevation of about 27 degrees when due south. Now, given a telescope of eight inches or greater aperture, and a dark, transparent night, it should be even possible to spot its moon Triton, and that's certainly something I want to try and do by the end of the month. On August the eighth, forty-five minutes before sunrise, you can see Mars below Castor and Pollux in Gemini, as I said earlier. The good news about Mars is that. During this apparition, when it's closest to us in May next year, its angular diameter will reach 18.6 arc seconds, in comparison to the meager 14 arc seconds that we had in the last two apparitions. But sadly, it'll then be at a rather low elevation. On August the seventh, Jupiter and Mercury are close together in Leo, also close to the star Regulus. It's one of the last chances to observe Jupiter this apparition, and given clear skies and a low western horizon, you should be able to spot Jupiter, Mercury, and Regulus within a one-degree diameter circle. So binoculars will easily show it, as will a low-power eyepiece on a small telescope. Both planets are nearly fully lit, but Jupiter's 31 arc-second disk will appear significantly less bright than Mercury's disk. Some six times smaller. Now, perhaps the real highlight of this month is the Perseid meteor shower, visible on the mornings of the twelfth, thirteenth, and fourteenth, perhaps between midnight and dawn. The Perseid meteors are produced by debris from the comet Swift-Tuttle. The peak of the shower is actually after sunrise on the morning of the thirteenth, so before sunrise that morning. Will be the best chance, if clear, of viewing the shower. But the peak is actually quite broad, so it's well worth observing on the nights before and after, or should I say, early mornings. Most meteors are seen looking about 50 degrees from the radiant, 
which lies between Perseus and Cassiopeia, in fact, not far from the lovely double cluster in Perseus. And the great thing about this year is that with new moon on the 14th, there will be no moonlight to hinder our view on the days around the peak. Under cloudless skies, from a dark location, one might expect to see 50 to 70 meteors an hour near the peak. That's during the last hours of darkness on the morning of the 13th. I'll never forget a night on the 13th in 1999, just following that total eclipse of the sun that happily we actually saw down in the Isles of Scilly. And on that night, several of us went up to observe, and in 45 minutes, we observed 75 meteors. So it's really worth having a try. And very quickly, on August the 22nd, an hour after sunset, Saturn will be close to a first quarter moon looking west before dawn. Saturn and Libra will be seen close to the first quarter moon. A good horizon in the south-southwest will be needed. I sometimes point out things to observe in the moon. Um, there's an object called the straight wall, although, to be honest, it's not a wall, but a gentle scarp, and Sir Patrick said, neither is it a wall, nor is it straight. It's best observed one or two days after first quarter, or a day or two before third quarter. So about the evening of the 4th of August, or the evening of the 17th August, should it be clear, will be the best time to observe it. It's actually a very nice object to observe on the moon. So a bit to do this month, and say nights are slightly longer, which is a good thing. Best of luck. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere, here's Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are. Kia and welcome to the August Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory. We're very lucky here in the Southern Hemisphere to have lovely clear skies and much less light pollution than in the Northern Hemisphere. We also look towards the centre of our galaxy, so we generally see more stars from the Southern Hemisphere than Northern Hemisphere observers. In this month's Jodcast, we'll look at some of these stars and some other objects that can be spotted from here with binoculars or a small telescope, and also with the naked eye. These last few months we've had some beautiful planets regaling the sky, and this will continue into August. At the beginning of the month, three bright planets appear low in the western evening sky soon after sunset. Brilliant silvery Venus is the brightest and highest, with golden Jupiter below and right. Mercury is well below the two bright planets on August the 1st, but moves quickly up the sky night to night as Venus and Jupiter sink lower. On the 7th, Mercury is just a full moon's diameter to the right of Jupiter. Venus is left of the close pair of planets, and all three set about 70 minutes after the Sun. Mercury continues its ascent of the evening sky through August, while Venus and Jupiter disappear in the twilight. By the end of the month, Mercury is setting due west after 8pm, making its best evening sky appearance of the year. The bright orange star Arcturus is setting in the northwest, well to the right of Mercury, often flashing red and green as it goes. After passing between us and the Sun mid-month, Venus will appear in the eastern dawn twilight. By the 20th it will be rising in the east an hour before the Sun. Venus will remain the morning star for the rest of the year. August sees the Milky Way stretching east to west across our evening sky. Along this path we find the majority of the bright stars in our night sky. In the north, to the left side of the Milky Way, is Vega, the fifth brightest star in the sky. Vega is about 25 light-years away, and around 40 times brighter than the Sun. 
It forms part of the constellation of Lyra that represents an ancient stringed instrument. Opposite Vega in the south, Canopus is the second brightest star in the night sky and twinkles with a yellow tint. This star is 310 light years away and 15,000 times brighter than the sun. To the Polynesians, this star is Atutahi, the navigator, considered by Maori as the chief of all the stars in the sky. Canopus was also the navigator of Argo Navis, the ship in which the Argonauts searched for the Golden Fleece. Argo Navis was once the biggest constellation in the sky, but was subdivided in 1752 into Carina, the keel or the hull of the ship, Papis, the poop deck or stern, and Vela, the sails. These constellations now hold the asterisms known as the False and Diamond Crosses, which are adjacent to Crux, the Southern Cross. The Diamond, False, and Northern Crosses are asterisms, which means they are not true constellations. However, the Southern Cross is a constellation, the smallest of the 88 official constellations in the sky, and is in fact smaller than both the Diamond and False Crosses. Crux is lying on its side after sunset and will drop lower as the night progresses. Over the evening, we see the stars rotating clockwise around a point in the sky that we call the South Celestial Pole. This point would sit overhead if you were at the South Pole. In the Northern Hemisphere, the North Celestial Pole is marked by the North Star Polaris. However, the star that marks the South Celestial Pole, Sigma Octantis, is barely visible and cannot be seen well with the naked eye. So here we can only estimate the position of the Southern Celestial Pole using the stars, such as the Southern Cross. Above Crux are Alpha Centauri, the third brightest star, and Beta Centauri, the eleventh brightest star in our night sky, which point you towards the Southern Cross and appear to follow it around the sky. The Southern sky is filled with spectacular globular clusters, and Omega Centauri, the brightest of all, is well placed for viewing this month. It can be seen as a fuzzy star to the north of Beta Centauri. With a small telescope, the cluster becomes a glowing, shimmering ball of stars, with many individual stars visible towards the outskirts of the cluster. Sitting about halfway above the southern horizon as the Southern Cross sinks towards its lowest position in the sky is the faint constellation of Tucana the Toucan. Alpha Tucana is a magnitude 2.8 star about 200 light years away. Beta Tucana is a loose group of six gravitationally bound stars approximately 140 light years away. The two exceptional objects in the Toucan are the small Magellanic Cloud and 47 Tucani, the second brightest globular cluster in the sky. The SMC is visible to the unaided eye as a cloudy smudge in the sky, but the secret to viewing it properly is to use peripheral vision to bring out more detail. Peripheral vision is a trick that visual astronomers use to spot very faint objects such as nebulae, clusters, or galaxies. Try to look at the object with the tip of the eye rather than directly at it, as if you are looking just to the side of it, and you should be able to see much more. The small Magellanic cloud is best viewed from a dark location, and it is bright enough to be seen from many suburban locations as long as the moon and local lighting are not too bright. It is a dwarf galaxy of several hundred million stars, about 200,000 light years away, one of the nearest neighbours of our own Milky Way. With any size telescope or good binoculars, a number of star clusters can be seen in and around the SMC. Sitting beside the SMC and also visible to the eye as a fuzzy star is 47 Tucani. It is a globular cluster consisting of millions of ancient stars. This cluster is a stunning sight in binoculars or telescopes. There is another larger and brighter cloud to the right of the SMC. This is the Large Magellanic Cloud or LMC. Another of our galactic neighbours, lying even closer at just 160,000 light years away. 
the Magellanic Clouds, the Crosses, Alpha and Beta Centauri, and all of these beautiful clusters in the south, objects that can always be seen in our southern night sky, as they are circumpolar. This means they never set below our horizon. Saturn is the only bright planet in the late evening sky. A small telescope shows Saturn's ring system and biggest moon Titan, looking like a star about four ring diameters from the planet. More powerful telescopes should reveal faint banding in the planet's atmosphere, along with gaps and variation in color of the rings. This object, more than any other, will get a great response from first-time observers. They are always surprised how much the planet looks like it does in the pictures, albeit very much smaller. Thank you for listening to the August Jodcast. I will shortly be heading off on maternity leave, so our new curator of science, Haratina Mogasano, will be stepping in to produce the Southern Skies section over the next few months. I look forward to catching up with you all again when I return in the new year. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. This month's Southern Night Sky was co-written by Claire with Haritina Mogusanu, who will be taking over from Claire in September. Claire, who has been giving us the Southern Night Sky for a year now, is going on maternity leave and will be back sometime in the new year. Thank you so much, Claire, and best of luck with your new baby. How exciting. <laughs> and now onto the feedback. So we've had a great um, postcard this month from Bill Kektu, who in the past sent us a postcard prior to New Horizons sending um, back these images recently, saying that for all of human history, Pluto has had no face to be continued. Very, I thought, quite mysterious. <laughs> and um, we've had a recent update from Bill Kektu with a um, picture of the new photo from New Horizons of Pluto with the lovely heart shape on the front, um, which completes the previous postcard. And we've had three emails so far. So first is from Frané, who says, Hi from the Lowell Observatory. Greetings from the place of Pluto's discovery, which I'm currently visiting on my US trip. Thanks for the great show. Love it. Jod on. Uh, we also have an email from Rob Connolly, who says, Hey there. I just wanted to drop you all a note to say you do a great job. I love the personal spirit of your show and really love the great commentaries on observing the night sky. And I enjoy listening to the commentaries for both hemispheres. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Rob. And we've also had some really lovely feedback from Malton Sulkanen. Thank you very much for your lovely positive comments. And a couple of you have been in touch on Facebook. So this month we heard from Russ Jenkins, who said, Fascinating interview with Dr. Crowther. Who else is working in the lab next door that you don't know about yet? I think that is a bit of a problem and we need to go and investigate <laughs> in the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. They are, they are very friendly. I, I did do some lectures over there when I was an undergraduate. So yeah, we should go talk to them more. Yeah, I think we should learn a bit more about meteorites and that kind of thing. Um, yep, so he recommends that we should go and read the nameplates. Um, we also heard from Andrew Horner, who also enjoyed the interview with Sarah Crowther. Um, and also hearing, he enjoyed hearing about the ghost of Jodcast's past, Mark Perver. To which Mark has responded to us on Twitter and... Uh, said, I just heard my last Jodcast interview referred to as being the ghost of Mark Perver. I'm not dead! And a smiley face. So, no, we know you're not dead, Mark, and we hope you're still listening. Thank you for all the retweets and favourites. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Finally, thanks to Dr. Amanda Caracas for the interview. The editors were Adam Averson, Charlie Walker and Monique Henson. The producer was Sally Cooper. Until next time, Jordan! Jordan.